Welcome to Paint on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Hello, I'm Gregory Payne, the co-director of the Emerson Blancarina Global Center and chair of communication studies, the first communication department in the United States at Emerson College. And I am here with Nico, who is at Harvard. Nico is kind of an icon in political comm at Emerson. And I know he went to Harvard because having gone to Harvard, both Nico and I are wearing Blue Gingham shirts today. We not quite sure why. How how did you pick that out in your closet? Well, I started my desk. So what would Doctor Payne do? <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those coincidences, Nico. It is great to have you back. Uh, There's so many wonderful memories of you when you were here. Hmm. But before we get into that, and of course, you're the fact that you're a soccer star and a GQ icon. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us what you're doing over in Cambridge? Yes. Yeah, so right now, I'm studying education at Harvard. Um, and the reason I chose education is I think that is going to be the future battlefield for our politics. And I think we're already seeing that right now with critical race theory and, and kind of what people can and cannot say in the classroom. And it's interesting because a lot of these really high-level macro conversations about policy are being played out in this space. And I think as America begins to kind of reckon with its past, you can't quite shift culture until you shift curriculum. Um, and so I, well, I have no intention of being a classroom teacher opposed to my new <laughs> professorship at Emerson College. I mean in the sense of K through eight or K through 12. Um, I do think that education and politics are intrinsically linked and you can't separate the two. And as we kind of look to the problems of the future, I'm really inspired by this new generation and the way they're challenging us to think not only about our past, but about our future as well. Right. How, of course, coming from a school that is based in communication and telling stories since 1880, how important do you think language and communication is in some of the issues that you've just raised? Yeah, that's a great question. I was actually speaking about this last night, and I used George Washington as an example. I think, for example, George Washington uh, owned slaves, right? Problematic. Okay, on the other hand, he also helped write one of the greatest documents of all time, that document is also largely borrowed from indigenous communities who had been doing it for thousands of years. And on top of that, he grew lots of hemp <laughs> and smoked weed. And I think if you're honest about that history in all facets, right, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that changes a policy conversation about marijuana. That changes policy about, you know, race relations in 2023. That changes, you know, the way we think about, again, coming off this, this past course of the Kennedy School, Indian sovereignty. But my point being is, by just examining our history and again reevaluating our curriculum and just being more honest about the good, the bad, the ugly, about all of our heroes from MLK, right, to George Washington, I think we can then give or lend more perspective to the policy issues that are happening right now. Because it's a big difference. I think it changes the debate when you find out that the founding fathers grew marijuana. Whether you support that or not, it doesn't really matter. It just changes the narrative of the political conversation. And I think there's a reason why some of this stuff is left out of the history books, because it's used to perpetuate policy that's problematic. <laughs> so in essence, what you're saying is you, you've kind of gone against the desanctification of some of these icons mm. and uh, seeing that they are humans, they have mm. problems, etc. Uh, some people would say, if you're that honest, though, are you not 
really attacking America, the values, mm -hmm. or would you say that you're really better appreciating what makes America very special and very different? Yeah, I think by meeting someone at their humanity, you're actually honoring like the true meaning of America, yes, right, and the true individualism that is here, um, right. The the whole kind of point of this country, right, is to is that no one can tell you how to live your life, right? I mean, I know we try, but uh, you know, to to really embrace that individuality and that freedom, and to say that yeah, we're human beings, we make mistakes, but how can we learn from those mistakes? Again, we can't learn from them if we don't admit to them. And I think it's all connected in that sense. So Nico, you're at Harvard. I remember talking to you when you were thinking about what you're gonna be doing. Yeah. Uh, of course you had, you were, you were at Emerson for a while. You were incredible in terms of political comp major. We'll talk about your trip up to uh, the, the caucuses and <laughs> yeah. to the primaries. But tell us uh, in terms of just growing up and then how you got to Emerson, mm -hmm. the role of soccer and athletics yeah. and building bridges, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think athletics has been the single greatest teacher I've ever had, um, just on, in life. I think that's true for most athletes, right? This is how you learn about lo loss. It's how you learn about love. It's how you learn about, you know, sometimes anger and hate, the negative emotions too. But on that field and not just with your teammates, but also in those, all those hours that you spend training alone and, you know, those cold nights and the nights in the rain, it just, it really builds character. Um, and you can't, at least if you're an athlete who really embraces that call, you can't hide from yourself, right? You have to really admit when you make mistakes or when you should have passed the ball or when, you know, and, and all of that just, uh, it, it really helps you understand who you are and how you respond to pressure and how you respond to, to all types of things that life throws at you because as any athlete knows, like anything can happen in that game. And so when you're always prepared, you know, I think, I draw on my example as a communicator, right? I look at that through a lens of sports, right? It's like a, a press conference is like a game, right? You know, the ball is always moving. You got to keep your eye on it, you know, and, and always be ready to react. Um, but again, you prepare by putting in that work ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think there's so many analogies you can draw between politics and sports. I think on a policy level, the two are actually linked. I think sports is a representation of culture and so is politics. Therefore, it's kind of this big uh, Venn diagram that, that, that links the three. But at the end of the day, I think sports have just opened a lot of doors for me. Um, it was a way for me to start to enjoy school um, in a different sense. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes I didn't have the best academic experience in my earlier childhood. Um, but then again, through sports, it finds a new way to connect with school, a new way to connect with you know, that environment. And then you start seeing it in a different light. Um, and it really is eye-opening. And so again, lifelong athlete, ran track, uh, played soccer. Um, I actually started my journey at UMass Amherst. I was there, um, recruited to run track, um, and again, studied communication. But what I didn't like about it, which was so great about Emerson, was that UMass was this big school and you're studying communication, but you're in a class of 300 people and you never actually get to communicate. <laughs> so I, you know, I transferred and I came to Emerson um, and I found this amazing place where you could just sit in a class or across from the chair of your communication department and actually communicate. Uh, it's that practical understanding and it's that vocational skill that I'm very thankful for. Right. I mean, the one thing that uh, you and I have talked about some and I've noticed Noticed, uh, of course, not anywhere near you in terms of playing sports, mm. but the fact that oftentimes you think of yourself, mm. we all think of ourselves, but if you're in a sport, you have to think of the team. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think in politics, it's really team. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think that you've taken away 
in terms of, you've kind of hinted at that, but uh, how do you identify yourself as part of that team, but yet keep your own individuality and something that I've always seen in you in the classroom and everything you do, the leadership that you bring to it? Yeah, one of the big things, and uh, it's great that this is on camera so that everyone can see is my hair. I think that's a way of, I've always been able to embrace my individualism um, and kind of express my identity. So uh, in my early years at Emerson, I had a a blonde mohawk (laughs) at time, which of course, match the gold of our uniform, the purple and gold. Um, and again, always just having fun, right? Because again, you could be a part of a team and still express yourself that way. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of different hairstyles over the years, flat top, mohawk, uh, dyed it different colors. Uh, I've shaved it off. I've grown it out. I've braided it. Um, but it always comes back to, uh, you know, a way of Again, just a, a quiet expression of individualism and, and self while still supporting the overall team. Yeah, I think the key that I would say to you being a little bit older is yeah. uh, it's nice to be able to play play with the hair and restyle the hair until you have no hair and then you uh, suddenly don't have that option. Every uh, man in my family is bald, so I'm getting it all in while I can. In, yes. <laughs> so Nico, one thing that I remember, of course, one uh, one aspect of Emerson is uh, whether it's with Professor Kimball, mm. Professor Thompson, or any of us, and we, we take you and Connor and Emily and others to mm. various places. You, you went to Iowa. Yes. Now, what was it like with your... You know, with your your blonde hair going to uh, <laughs> Iowa for the uh, for the primary. Yeah, Iowa was a great experience because uh, you it really got intimate, right? The Iowa caucus is an intimate event, right? So it's in the past I was more used to these giant political you know campaign rallies or you know these big press conferences, and you're going to Iowa and you know one event was at a gun range. The other event was at someone's house where Martin O'Malley stood up on the couch in front of, you know, no less than 20 people, or sorry, no more than 20 people, and just started giving off, you know, uh, his view of, of why they should vote for him for president. And so you really get these, like, small, intimate environments. Um, so you went with Rick, Rick Santorum, right? That was yeah, Rick range. Santorum. And he, yes, he had his event at a gun range. Um, and he had a target up and invited all of the supporters one by one to come up and, you know, watch him shoot the target. And then they took turns shooting. Uh, and it was actually the first time I'd ever shot a gun. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those when in Rome kind of moments. But um, we were really shocked because we had no experience, expertise. Um, and they pretty much just let us walk right up and shoot in the lane next to a presidential candidate, (laughs) which is not something you see in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but I think illustrates the kind of personal politics that you see in Iowa. And I think it's really important too, although that I'm, you know, very far far left leaning, it's important to see that from a political communication standpoint of how the other side engages with their base and what their base feels and thinks and reacts. Because it's really easy to look at that from afar and say, oh, that's deplorable. That's despicable. I don't, gun's bad. But actually be on the ground and see that and to see the humanity of the you know may not be my party or my politics but uh, people coming together like that is just uh it really informs my understanding of American politics. So, Nico, when you were there, of course, that you were getting that Midwestern perspective. Yeah. But you also, that was a very, very interesting campaign because 2016, everyone thought it was going to be President Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. And you had these people, although, you know, we had what, low energy Jeb. You had, of course, <laughs> Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. When you met those people, uh, 
What, what impressions did you come away with? Did you think at that time that Donald Trump was going to end up being the candidate as well as the president? Yeah, that's a great question. At that time, it was still very funny. Right. This is like the height of the SNL jokes. This is the height of, you know, kind of the the social media. Let's all laugh at Trump. He has no idea what he's doing. And even though he was saying really horrible things, he was so far out of the reality that it, it was funny and, and, and enjoyable. And then all of a sudden there was a moment in Iowa where it became real. And we all looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, this guy is actually gonna do, he's gonna do the thing. Um, and I don't think the rest of the country had that yet. Um, but I will say too, to speak about like you said, what was Jeb Bush, right? Kind of to steal a word from you is the mediated reality, right? You have this idea of Jeb Bush as low energy, quiet, kind of a pushover. Um, but then we went and watched him speak at a VFW, mm-hmm. right? And it was incredibly moving, even if it wasn't my politics, incredibly moving. And to see him, you know, charismatic, energetic, and working up a crowd full of veterans. Um, it was just, again, it, it just deconstructed that, that, that narrative that the media had been pushing. Um, and it's just really interesting to kind of see that in, in real time. Uh, I also had this just great moment at that event at the VFW. Afterwards, uh, there was a man, he had fought in the Vietnam War. I, I can't remember his name, but he approached me. Um, I was one of the only people of color there. Um, and he, he wanted to make sure that I was felt welcomed and, and comfortable in that space. And that really speaks volumes to his empathy. Um, and of course I was, but he told me this great story about how his uh, commanding officer in Vietnam was a black man and how, I guess, in his company or whatever it was, people were always trying to undermine his leadership. Um, and I guess a bunch of them got together and they found the guy who had been doing all this racist stuff and they, they beat him up. <laughs> yeah. But he's telling me this story and it's just, it's just really cool to be in that environment, to hear kind of, the, again, just the, the humanity from these people that the media will sometimes try to, you know, um, to paint in a certain light. And again, it's not an endorsement of the politics. It's just to say that we need to do a better job extending that empathy, you know, across party lines to meet people as human beings and where they are. Now, I think with regard to empathy, the one that uh, I mean, there are various episodes on that uh, that trip that I thought were were quite interesting, uh, some of which we'll probably just keep with memory's sake. Yeah. But one in particular was you all were very good about going to each of the candidates and mm-hmm. you and Elias, I think, decided <laughs> to go with Bernie. Yeah. And if you want to talk a little bit about that one, because I think that was an experience and one where we picked you up in a very cold part of, uh, of the town. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> Bernie's event was, was different because I just spoke to all these intimate kind of gatherings and Bernie had a big rally in Iowa. You know, there's probably thousands of people on that stage and it was, uh, it was very off-putting um, because the people were very antagonistic. Everyone was kind of looking for the spy, so to speak, <laughs> right? They weren't sure, hey, are you with the media? Who are you? Like, and so, and I understand there's, there's reservation there, right, to, you know, uh, but it was it was telling because uh, it was a place that we were going hoping to feel welcomed and kind of but we were kind of seen as outsiders and kind of pushed away and people were really unhappy that we were there. <laughs> um, but again, it just you know Bernie showed up you know I think maybe an hour or two late. It just the whole thing was a disaster, whether that's his fault or not. And so Elias and I are now in the middle of nowhere. We got dropped off. We're now walking on the on this highway after after leaving the event, and we're calling Dr. Payne and uh, we're we trying have, to find them. We're yeah. not sure where they were. We were like we're on a highway. We see this. I mean it's Iowa in the middle of the winter. Um, but anyways, just, finally they find us, and it was just it was just a mess of a day. But uh, again, just to kind of see that and to see that. Uh, the reality on the news isn't quite the reality on the ground was really eye-opening to see. 
Now, one thing I would say, the other day I was looking on Instagram and I see you giving a speech. Mm. And I think this was in commemoration of Martin Luther King Day. Correct. Uh, so my question to you is, what was the essence of that speech? And are you thinking of one day running? It's a great question. It's a good question. Uh, the essence of the speech was this, you know, unfortunately, uh, a few weeks ago, the Cambridge police uh, shot and killed the 20 year old freshman student at UMass Boston. He was suffering from a severe mental illness uh, or a mental episode. Um, and uh, they shot him six times in the chest. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about procedure and what happened and what went wrong. Um, but one thing that's missing from that conversation is that we lost a young man from our community, right? A young student um, who was, you know, having the worst day of his life, but had no prior, you know, uh, you know, run-ins with the law enforcement or e even mental health. And so it's really devastating that, you know, we couldn't be there to protect him on his worst day and that we met him with force. So my speech was to remind people of that empathy and to say that it doesn't, like the facts are, are important for some, but those are, that's an afterthought to the tragedy that happened. And that's not even to put blame. It's just to say that to lose anyone in our community through violence is, is, is sad. Um, and so I spoke to that empathy and to extend, and I spoke about the lottery of birth in the sense that, you know, I can't control who my parents are or what neighborhood or what side of the tracks I was born to, or even what country I was born to. Um, and so because of that, I extend a lot of empathy to others uh, because I know that I could have been born in their shoes. Um, and I challenge the audience that, you know, to say that if I can do that, I would, in the spirit of MLK, I would like you to look at somebody like me with the same empathy and know that you could have been born in mine. Um, and so I ended the speech just by saying that, again, empathy is important. And, you know, as we problem solve, one of the things is that I will fully admit that I don't have an answer, but we're not gonna find that answer by thinking inside the box. So my call to action was, as we think about this issue, as we think about public safety in the future, how can we think about these issues in a way that hasn't been done before so that we can avoid stuff like that in the future? Very um, good. It sounds to me like you're getting ready to announce. <laughs> Everyone keeps asking me that. It's funny. You're now the fifth person to ask me that in probably about a week. Um, I would be lying if I said that I haven't entertained the idea. That would be a, I would be a lie if I had it, if I said that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm a student right now. I'm just getting started teaching. Um, and, you know, I, there's a big part of me that still wants to enjoy being 27. Mm -hmm. Um you know, to step over, you know, to cross that line and, and, and you know, announce and to run for office, um, you know, for, for better or worse, there's no coming back from it. Um, and so, you know, while it is a goal of mine, I want to make sure that when I do cross that line, I can do it with 100% certainty um, and stability in my own life. Um, but at the same time, I also always caution that because there's a great quote that I love is a, a great man does not, isn't called doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. So a great man does not. Yeah. And so for me, it just, I always have to keep that humility in, in, in my heart and say that it's not about the job. It's not about the title. It's not about my own ambition. It's not even about my own goals. However, you know, progressive or good they might be, you know, it's about serving my community and the community's needs. Um, and so that question is not really up to me. It's up to my community. Um, and hopefully one day they'll be ready.
Well, hopefully this podcast, we can say we got him on, <laughs> we got him where he was connected at that time before he went to D.C. and saved America. <laughs> Question I have for you yes. is, you went to Emerson, yes. uh, and we talked a little bit about Emerson. You then have made that transition, you know, on the mm -hmm. red line over to Harvard. Mm -hmm. What's it like going to Harvard, and mm -hmm. what would you say the differences are for people that might be looking on their way to, to go to Cambridge? Yeah. Well, I'll say one thing about Emerson is, and I say this to all the soccer recruits that, that reach out to me, and why I know what what it's like to study political communication here is that I, I really th see Emerson as a vocational school. And I mean that in a good way. It's, you know, I think a lot of schools that are very heavy on theory, they're really heavy, you know, on, um, you know, learning the, the fundamentals and all this kind of stuff. But, but Emerson really, and it does that too, but Emerson throws you out into the field. And so, you know, while I was here, I was learning in the classroom, but I was also interning at the state house, interning at the city of Boston, working on campaigns, right? traveling to Iowa and getting that practical experience of, okay, yeah, this is theory, but how does it actually translate to practice? And so I think I was able to really hit the ground running in a way that my peers weren't. Um, and so when I graduated, I was already qualified for the jobs that I wanted because I had been doing the work already. Um, and so in that sense, I think it was a really easy transition to Harvard. And I'm actually noticing now that a lot of these kids that I'm in class with, they may be very smart and very gifted, but they approach politics from a very, you know, one dimensional, this is theory, this is political science, but they've never actually worked on a campaign. Right. They've never actually been in a room where people are debating policy. Um, and that's not a criticism of them. It's just to say that I'm very thankful for that Emerson experience and it actually prepared me to really just hit the ground running when I got to Harvard. Yeah, I think what we try to do is uh, make sure that you leave with some of that political uh, experience under the fingernails, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, one question I would have is you've also had another transition, which we're very happy about, and that is we have uh, Professor Nico in class. Yeah. What's it like going into a class and suddenly not sitting down, but leading the class? Yeah, it definitely took a little while to get used to. Um, when I finished my first class on Tuesday, I had a few students stick around after, and they were like, excuse me, Professor? <laughs> and I was like, I looked back like, <laughs> And I was like, oh, me, of course, right? Um, so, you know, it's definitely a little bit of a culture shock. But the one nice thing about being in school while I'm teaching is that I can steal all the best material. <laughs> and not, not literally the content, but the way in which my professors teach. And so I think if I hadn't been in school, having to think back four years before would have been a little harder. But right now it's so fresh in my head. So when my professor does a group activity or a case study or, you know, the style in which they present information, I go, oh, I like that. And then I bring it right like that and then I bring it right like that and then I bring it right since it's great to be a student and a teacher at the same time right so Nico as you know you've gone through some transitions Emerson is going to be hmm. getting a new president of course we had President Pelton who did many things to elevate us to this level uh, if President Bernhardt were listening and maybe he will be listening what would be a message that you would give him as he enters at a time in which I think Emerson is destined for greatness I've never seen it in a better shape for him to take it to the next level. Yeah, well, I would say my goal for Emerson, this is true for the soccer team, and they're already killing it right now. Um, but I want, my goal is that I want Emerson to become a school that I would have never gotten accepted to. <laughs> and I say that jokingly, but I mean, I just, I want to see it flourish in a way that, that can compete with a Harvard because I really believe having had both those experiences, that Emerson is right there. The stuff that I'm learning here is almost identical. And, the, and not only just the, the, the subject matter, but the pedagogy, the way it's being taught. Um, and I think there's just, there's so many similarities that I'm seeing and there's such a great foundation that I'm building on. So I would love to see that. And I think we're on the right track, but my biggest, you know, I think 
takeaway from my Emerson experiment experience is the people. And so as someone who's new to the community, I would just want him to make sure that he's really reaching out to really understand what makes this student body so special. And I'm sure he's gonna do that work. Um, but, uh, you know, our students are, are, they're different. And I mean that in a good way. Um, and we have to embrace that, that, that curiosity and that ambition um, and just their, just their unwavering, unwavering, you know, I guess beliefs, you know, they, they're really strong, uh, have really strong opinions about you know, the, the world, the, our culture, our, our politics, the future. Um, and rather than shy away from that, uh, I hope to embrace it. I hope he does too. Well, first of all, Nico, I'd like to say welcome back. You're always uh, always welcome to come across the river here. And of course, you're over there. The one thing I would also say is that it's wonderful to see your pathway forward. Of course, you were a student. Now you're over again uh, as a graduate student. You're a professor. Mm. I think it will only be a few maybe months or years, depending on that call to where we say candidate. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I think whenever we see that, uh, we're going to know that you can study politics at Harvard, but you really have done politics at Emerson. So mm. thank you very much. And when I look at you, I see Veritas. Yes. Take thank care. You. Thank you. Panel Politics with Nico.